0: This is a topic that I find people really like to talk about. It's an interesting way that philosophy can be uh, useful with broad appeal. Uh, So what I'm gonna try to do is not talk for too long because I imagine many of you came here because you have things to say. Uh, And I'd like to hear it because uh, a lot of the interesting stuff comes out of the examples and some of the stuff is actually quite urgent. Uh, So let's get started. The political right in the United States has long been hostile to apologies, upholding a kind of taboo against unpatriotic blasphemy. George H.W. Bush repeatedly offered about 10 different versions of his mantra. Here we have it. I will never apologize for the United States. I don't care what the facts are, I'm not I love this, apologize for America kind of guy. Not only one I won't apologize for America, but it's not the kind of guy I am, right? I'm not one of those guys who would apologize for America. Mitt Romney, I know you all remember Mitt Romney, uh, he titled his autobiography, does anyone know? No Apologies, right? Your autobiography, if you title your autobiography No Apologies, uh, saying something conservatives cast Barack Obama as the you see the t-shirt there apologizer in chief who went on various apology tours around the world people would say he was apologizing for America and debasing our national pride and identity Whenever President Obama sought to address the root causes of terrorism, the right described him as apologizing for US foreign policy. Take a second to see this cartoon. I didn't cite the source of this cartoon because this is from one of these dicey alt-right sites that I did not want to send any traffic to. But you see, the sooner we discover who's behind this latest terrorist incident, the sooner I'll know who to apologize to. Meaning, whenever Obama would start to talk about US geopolitics and how we might have incited various global conditions that caused attacks, that was redescribed by the right as a kind of groveling to the enemy. Enter Donald Trump and his campaign to make America great again. I am considered an expert in apologies not because of my social skills. <laughs> my wife will assure you of that. <laughs> but because I have written two rather long and technical books on the subject. I'm also a lifelong citizen of the United States, currently living under the Trump administration. And so an expert on apologies living under the Trump administration. <laughs> Special kind of position I'm in. As a comparison, President Obama once drew considerable ire for comments regarding then California Attorney General and now Senator Kamala Harris. Obama said of Harris, she's brilliant, She is dedicated, she's tough, she's exactly who you'd want in anyone who is administering the law and making sure that everybody is getting a fair shake. He continued, this is what got him in trouble, she also happens to be by far the best-looking attorney general in the country. It's true, come on, Obama said. President Obama called Harris the next day to apologize for the distraction caused by what many considered his sexist commenting on the appearance of a colleague. I will not remind you of the various things President Trump has said about women, but I think it uncontroversial to say that they are far more offensive than Obama calling Senator Harris brilliant, dedicated, tough, and also good-looking. President Trump channels John Wayne's machismo code, many of you have heard this, never apologize. It's a sign of weakness. His personal attitudes have become something of a national and nationalist ideology against apologizing. This does not, however, entail that apologies do not interest President Trump. He demands apologies from others regularly, perhaps more than any other public figure. Here are a few. His call for Obama to apologize to him. His call for Hillary Clinton to apologize to him. His demands that the New York Times and the media, the media generally apologize to him. He expects an apology from ESPN. Right, here you have the President of the United States picking out an individual ESPN commentator and demanding apology from her. He even wants an apology from the cast of Hamilton. Hamilton, of all things, he's going after Hamilton. There are many more examples of President Trump not apologizing for things that seem rather obviously to warrant an apology, but then demanding apologies from others in a manner that seems below the prestige of his office. Analyzing these dynamics in detail is beyond the scope of this paper, but in short, we can note that this has something to do with gender, race, class, power, privilege, nationalism, and the optics of political outrage, The optics of outrage, this is an important aspect of the Trump administration. Here we should remember the dark history of authority figures demanding apologies and confessions from subjects and enemies described graphically by Foucault in his account of state-sanctioned medieval torture practices, nominally carried out to produce confessions and penance, but ultimately serving the end of consolidating power by contorting the bodies and spirits of populations. Confession, Foucault wrote, has become one of the West's most valued techniques for producing truth. Authoritarian states have long coerced public statements of rehabilitation, a term that was uh, a bit contested early this morning, from resistors. And of course, coercive persuasion as a means to repentance serves as the origins of the modern penal system in the United States. We call them penitentiaries because people were supposed to go there have quiet, read the holy book, and repent, right? Modern incarceration is kind of an apology system when you you think about it. All this should remind us that apologies are more than progressive remedies that mend wounds. They also have a dark underbelly of authoritarianism, social control, humiliation, and self-degradation at the foot of the gallows with all be cautiously watched in the United States in 2017 the culture of apologies is probably not our most urgent concern but it is worrying meanwhile in Canada when I first saw this image Right? My Canadian colleagues might be accustomed to seeing these sorts of things, but when I first saw this image, I did the mental exercise of trying to imagine President Trump. <laughs> Take a second, try it yourself, try to put him in that, put President Trump in right? Why we have such a hard time doing this says a lot, right? We, we could spend volumes trying to unpack what, what's going on here. Prime Minister Trudeau seems to occupy the opposite end of the spectrum of contrition. So much so that comedian John Oliver, I hope you all know John Oliver, has even parodied Trudeau's seemingly excessive repeated apologies for jostling legislators on the floor of the House of Commons. I assume you all have seen this. I guess this was a big uh, brouhaha. Uh, It was, you know, sort of a nudge, jostle, and then there were, I think, three apologies and a charge Uh, interesting to watch from the United States I learned and I should say I feel I feel weirdly like inappropriate repeating this uh, but I learned that there is um, something of a stereotype that Canadians apologize excessively I grew up not far from the border and I never really came across the stereotype but in preparing for this conference I realized this this is a stereotype and there's all sorts of sort of jokes about this Uh, and you know this is the this is the BuzzFeed Canadian staff Uh, you know you visit it yourself again I feel weird reproducing this because I it seems imprecise it seems uh, awkward, but there is some kind of uh, view out there. So you have this list, you know, apologizing to a wall for running into it, right, there's the people who are apologizing for apologizing too much, stop apologizing so much, I'm sorry, right. Something apparently is different in the water here. I'm not sure exactly what, and there's a lot to be said, right? I've, in my first book, I spent a good deal of time thinking about sort of the cultural specificity of various aspects of apologizing. Uh, I didn't know that uh, Canada was apparently an outlier of some sort. Uh, what I'd like to do now uh, is that knowing that Prime Minister Trudeau is uh, considering various apologies, we have. Um, Apparently, the way it works in Canada, and this is also somewhat, um, somewhat unusual, is there'll be an announcement that there's going to be an apology. There's a kind of a run-up, an anticipation. Uh, I haven't quite understood w- what's going on here. Uh, why is there that? I mean, in some ways, it makes sense, so there, some work can get done in advance, but it, it's not sprung on you all as a, as a surprise. Here's one. This is for the SS St. Louis. Uh, so the SS St. Louis I believe went from Cuba to the United States to Canada, was refused entry uh, in all three places. Uh, about a quarter, it was sent back to Europe and about a quarter of the refugees were killed in death camps. Right? There will be an apology for this from the Trudeau administration soon. And many of you, as we discussed a bit today, know that this apology is on, on the way as well and there's been a lot of work by many gifted people to bring a good outcome what i'd like to do now is offer some advice or guiding questions about when these apologies are in process and when they're delivered what should we look for what should be in these apologies? What would make them good? I am uh, by no means an expert on Canadian politics. I, and this weirdly may be uh, an asset right now because many of you may be so steeped in these issues that um, perhaps when an outsider uh, comes to talk to you about this stuff, s- some of the questions I ask, perhaps they'll prove to be uh, fertile, useful, or interesting enough to, uh, uh, Think about disregard. The first question I want to ask, and this is really the subject of the entirety of my first book, it's a simple question, it's a philosophical question with deep interdisciplinary, genuine interdisciplinary roots is what is an apology? Sounds like a simple question. You all probably have an intuitive answer. It's like when someone asks you, oh, what is love? You're like, oh, I know what it is. I base my life around certain beliefs and values. And then you try to write it down and deeply important deeply complicated what is an apology proves to be a massively complex and also very big business what counts as an apology is a subject of contested litigation in all 50 US states with billions of dollars in litigation on the line and political parties fight to control the pen when defining the term. Findings of remorse from attitudes during police stops through demeanor findings at probation hearings are arguably one of the most important determinants in sentencing in the United States and can, quite literally, be the difference between life and death sentences. A lot is at stake in this philosophical question and I devoted much of I was wrong, my first book, to the inexact science of identifying the distinct spheres of apologetic meaning. The book considers a wide variety of apologetic meanings and warns against thinking of apologies in all or nothing binary terms. This is an absolutely central feature of my theory. I've tried to resist for a long time the idea that there is a certain thing that is an apology and either you have it or you don't. Apologies are not all or nothing and that view is very distorting and is very easily weaponized. Instead we should be clear about what we seek in apologies and evaluate them accordingly. The following benchmarks guide the standards for what I call categorical apologies and can serve as touchstones for our thinking. Categorical apologies understood as a regulative ideal for acts of contrition, address the following concerns. I'm going to put this slide up, there's a lot of text on it. I'm going to leave it here for the remainder. So, these are the 13 spheres, parts, elements, aspects. Call them what you like. An ideal apology will have all 13. Let's say a little bit about each one of these in a second. Some apologies might have, you know, 6 through 11, but not so good on 2. Or it might be great on 1 and 13, but 2 through 12, not so great. All sorts of different things apologies can accomplish. Some victims perhaps maybe only want redress, 11. The rest is window dressing. Maybe they get, you know, 1 through 10, 12 and 13, but nobody pays, right? What the thrust of my work is to get people thinking about what is it that we're looking for in an apology, contrast that with what we actually get, to have some precision. This is in contrast to thinking, have I gotten an apology or not? Hmm, was it sincere? Did someone really mean it? Well, meaning it, that's kind of just like, you know, something like 12 and 13. Right, someone can be really sincere and still not pay, or leave out lots of important stuff, or not accept, right? Sincerity is a term I try to get away from as much as possible. Right, I think there's too much, too much built in there. I prefer to to break it down in these terms. So just quickly, to say a little bit about these, and so cooperative factual record means basically you explain what happened with an appropriate degree of detail about all the morally salient facts. You explain what happened, something like a confession, this, 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 and this this happened. Sometimes that can importantly include mental states at the time of the offense. I meant to do this to you, for instance, rather than saying, oh, it was an accident that I did this. Mental states are very important to moral culpability. Acceptance of blame. This gets us into all sorts of trouble we'll talk about in a second. Categorical apology, I explain that I am to blame for the injury. Very different from saying, you know, I'm sorry your grandma died. This is not a confession that I killed your grandmother, right? If, in fact, I did kill your grandmother, right, and I am to blame for killing your grandmother, you'd be expecting something very different than I'm sorry your grandmother died, right? Just know the same words, different order, different, right? Very, very, very obvious distinction that often gets manipulated. Okay. Acceptance of blame. Possession of appropriate standing, meaning you're the right person to be doing the apologizing because you are the person who deserves blame. Okay. So whatever sort of say arguments I get into with my wife and you know I get in trouble, if my mom apologizes for me to my wife doesn't really mean the same thing. Right? Oh, Nick really should take out the trash more. I know. He's never been good at that. Right? That's not the same as me understanding right, that I am to blame and I'm going to right, do all these things. Identifying each harm to stick with the taking out the trash example. Right? Many of you may argue about like you know, domestic responsibility, labor, etc. Maybe you argue about taking out the trash. It's never really about the trash. right? It's about disrespecting people's time, not doing what you promised to do, right? It's usually about deeper underlying moral values in the relationship. And number four, we get underneath, we get at all the different kinds of harm, right? So not only did I take out the trash, perhaps I've been doing this for a long time because I expect you to do it because I think my job is more important than yours. So really what this is about is, disrespecting you, not about the trash, getting underneath what's the real moral issue that's causing the problem, the injury. Identifying the moral principles, related shared commitment, number six. We can name all sorts of values without actually being committed to them and endorsing them. This is why I titled that first book I was wrong. This means that I did something, right? You get some of the factual record there. I accept blame, right? I have breached some value that I find important. I violated a value that's important to me and then I share with you, This is community building, right? This is very central to apologies as identifying, invigorating, Shared values. Recognition of the victim is more an allocutor, meaning right, lots of moral injuries happen because we uh, treat people as mere means. We treat them as unimportant. We um, uh, we don't see them as full humans with interests. In many cases, especially for for grave injuries that we'll we'll talk about oftentimes what a person may want most from an apology is to be looked in the eye, treated as a person, recognized as an equal, and recognized as an equal in a way that, no, this is not just being recognized as an equal about some conversation about your favorite sports team. This is a person saying, I have a core value, I've harmed you because i failed that core value, I am incredibly vulnerable now, right, because the core value that I use to sort of, you know, orient my life on this ball of rock in space, I have violated that, and now I'm turning to you to talk about this, my failure, about my values, right. This is thick existential work that gets done, right. Treating the other person, the victim, as a moral interlocutor. Right? An equal, a person about which you can talk about core values when you are at your most vulnerable. Right? This is uh, important stuff. Categorical regret, meaning if I could go back, I wouldn't do it again. This is different from saying, I regret that I had to bomb your people because that was my best choice at the time. I I feel bad about it, right, I wish I didn't have to, but given the geopolitical situation, I do the same thing again. That's not categorical regret. Categorical regret is I did something for which I was wrong and I made a mistake. And when I say I was wrong and I made a mistake, that also starts to get us thinking about the likelihood that I won't think it's right to do it again. Performance of the apology, we'll get to that in in context. Reform, on my view, uh, and this creates all sorts of messes, and everybody hates it, uh, but I think I'm right. A categorical apology is like a promise to never reoffend. I'm not going to do it again. What's interesting about this and why everyone hates it is that what this means is, right, whatever I say to you, say, you know, I, I wrong you and then I apologize on the spot, it's hard to figure out the value of my apology at that moment. It takes some time to see how I behave, right? Because if I apologize to you and then I reoffend on the same thing tomorrow, you're like, oh, Nick Smith's apology is not worth very much because he's going to do the same thing tomorrow. Categorical apology is a promise not to reoffend over a lifetime. It is strengthened, right? The apology, the meanings of the apology are strengthened if you face similar temptations, and you don't reoffend. Right. So you, similar setup. Last time you did this, next time you don't do this. Right. This is a classic feature uh, of Maimonides' view of apologies, the Teshuvah, right? Where you, right, Until you. are faced with a similar set of temptations, we don't really know how much you've repented. Notions of categorical apologies, like all notions of apologies, are descendants of ancient religious traditions of repentance, we get into some trouble when we try to secularize them, makes all sorts of complexities. Reform, redress, sometimes This is money, sometimes this is taking practical responsibility. That redress, typically, in categorical cases, right, the redress is performed, comes out of the pocket of the offender, right, rather than outsourcing it or having some third party come in and pay, right. This is typically how we would, we would understand redress. Intentions, categorical apology apologizes for the right reasons. It's not a a cynical manipulation of public sentiment for corporate gain or political gain or personal uh, sexual gain or anything like that, It's done to honor the victim and the principle at stake. Intentions matter. 13, emotions. Oftentimes, people go right to 13 when they're evaluating apologies, oh, the person's crying. They're so sincere. Uh, it's like you just okay. I forgive you. Stop crying. Right? This really happens, right? So we judge sincerity by sort of the theatrics of emotional displays. It can be very deceptive, right? Because if, just because someone is, you know, seeming very sad, doesn't mean they've accepted blame. Doesn't mean they've told you what happened. Doesn't mean they're not going to do it again. Right? We want to be careful with emotions. Right. There's a normative component to emotions a certain emotions in certain contexts are appropriate, but we don't want to overvalue them. Right. At the same time, right, if someone is apologizing for a very serious offense and they're stone-faced, right, that's also a data point. Right. All these features combined, right, we, can, we can talk about them uh, in discussion. Why I chose these, what's left out, but again, it's a set of things. They can come in many different uh, arrangements. I defend each of these bookmarks at length and I was wrong. Conceived as such, categorical apologies are demanding acts that indicate a kind of moral transformation that resonates with thick conceptions of repentance within religious traditions. That book also considered how these meanings map onto Collective apologies, which I'm going to spend the rest of the time talking about, collective apologies add layers of complexity. Right, so uh, contrast, for instance, Prime Minister Trudeau's apology for the jostling on the floor of the House of Commons. Right, this is like he did it. He, you know, whatever was wrong, he did there. That's about him. Very different from the sorts of apologies we're talking about for turning away the SS St. Louis. Right, that's a collective apology. Right? You can see, right, apologies between two people already. <laughs> Very complicated, very complicated, and there's all sorts of sort of cross-cultural nuances that inflect these meanings. Add now injuries 100 years ago, perhaps millions of people, right, think about an apology for say, uh, apologies and reparations for uh, US slave trade, and you quickly get a sense for wow, there are a lot of moving, a lot of moving pieces. In the remaining time, I'd like to isolate a few specific issues, especially relevant to forthcoming collective apologies in Canada. If apologies present loose constellations of interrelated meanings, these are the questions I ask when first scanning the horizons of collective apologies. We stand a better chance of finding the meanings we seek from a collective apologies with these issues guiding our attempts to navigate the disorienting social landscapes. So I have a few different points I'd like to talk about with respect to the the two I put up earlier, the two cases I put up earlier. So the first thing I wanna be careful of is, oftentimes we get collective apologies when we should have apologies from individual people. They're a kind of, I call a poor substitute. We should not discount the possibility of a collective group of people providing a categorical apology. Although rare and most likely to occur in small groups bound by considerable solidarity, each member of the group could individually satisfy the elements of a categorical apology and perform the gesture communally. The group would speak and act from a consensus regarding all relevant elements and it would clearly define the group's membership. We can appreciate the full range of obstacles that prevent collective apologies from reaching the status of categorical, but I want to reiterate that such meaning is not only possible but also highly desirable in many cases. We're often getting something lesser because that's the best we can get for various social and political reasons. Oftentimes, we should be demanding right, collective categorical apologies. So a couple points, I've specific issues that relate to this. So one, the factual record. One of the most important aspects of apologies pertains to what I call corroborating the factual record, where the offenders explain what happened with an appropriate degree of specificity. Beware of vague platitudes like unacceptable things happened. Okay. You'll often hear this, Well, there you know, various versions of unacceptable things, bad things happened in the past and okay, let's move on to the next thing without actually naming what exactly happened. Uh, here we should watch for accounts from the Trudeau administration that gloss over the details. What exactly happened in both of these inci- incidents? To what extent did anti-Semitism and homophobia drive these decisions? Both the MS St. Louis denial and the LGBT purge resulted from the combined actions of many people, from the prime minister at the time to the rank and file, and they impacted many victims. Who are the wrongdoers and what exactly did they do. This also relates back to uh, identifying each harm, and there's, we often get this problem of uh, what I call naming the wrong wrong, uh, meaning people are more inclined to apologize for the lesser offense. right? So they charge us some big, horrible thing, and then they'll give an apology, but only for the lesser offense. In a Canadian example of this, uh, during the uh, the Catholic Church child abuse cases. Uh, there was an apology that came out of that. And one of the offenders apologized for breaking his vow of chastity. Which, you know, people are like, oh, we got an apology from And you're like, wait, he apologized apologize for that? Right? Different from apologizing for, right, the molestation of children and all the other sorts of right, horrific things that could, right. Most of us probably didn't care so much about the fact that he broke his vow of chastity right the wrong wrong right you're apologizing for the wrong wrong you're cherry picking the lesser offense in order to you know appear like you're apologizing for the whole the whole thing you should watch for this some offenders will be long deceased some will be elderly and infirm and some might now occupy prestigious positions and much prefer not to be named. Compiling such accounts might require teams of historians. And to actually get all the information, this is often it's often hidden, buried, intentionally hidden and buried. Historians can right, do this work to say and to help us understand exactly what happened. This is what they do. This is the sort of meaning that collective apologies can have the resources to provide, right? One real asset of collective apologies, right, is you can assemble teams of people who can do the work of putting the history together. Often individuals would never have deep enough pockets to to get at that kind of information. Another issue, blame. How's blame going to play out in these cases? Collective apologies are often conspicuously imprecise in matters of moral causation. If we trace accountability to the intentional actions of moral agents within the collective, have these individuals offered suitable apologies for their personal roles, right, for what they actually did? Have they apologized for what they actually did? Or, this is more common, do individuals who should apologize for their personal wrongdoing conceal their culpability in the collective and allow the collective to shoulder the blame that they should bear? So it wasn't me, it was the corporation, the state, the legislature, the laws, the culture, it was capitalism, right? Something besides me. Do leaders and spokespersons invoke individualist conceptions of responsibility when accepting praise, but shift to collective theories and speak in the passive voice when deflecting blame? This is a very interesting thing that happens, right? When we're talking about good things, like, oh, uh, my party managed to accomplish this initiative. My corporation, under my leadership, was able to raise its right value by this much. Therefore, I deserve to be reelected, or I deserve a raise. Right? When we talk about praise, we often have individualistic accounts. Right? I deserve responsibility. We talk about blame. It's like, oh, right. we go. All of a sudden, we have more collectivist notions. Account like, oh, we failed because of culture, capitalism, it was unforeseeable, impossible things happen, We're asymmetrical in moral causation. When things go well, right. we accept praise. When they go badly, sort of, all of a sudden, we don't believe in moral accountability anymore. Right. this is, uh, look for this. In either the MS St. Louis or the LGBT purge, will any living person accept blame? Will the apology even identify who is at fault? We can also scrutinize collective apologies that attribute harms solely to the structural features of institutions. If a representative blames a rule, policy, practice, or tradition, we can inquire into the origins and maintenance of such features of the collectives. More often than not, we can trace these structural characteristics to the choices of individual agents and assign assign blame accordingly. In general, our moral radar can become more sensitive and better equipped to track responsibility into institutional depths. This increased precision should also help us to detect the range of smaller offenses that compound to cause large-scale injuries. Bureaucratic structures may impede efforts to untangle causal chains or obscure our view of decision-making structures, but research or even legally compelled discovery proceedings may elucidate where blame should fall. Democratic principles favor transparency for these very reasons. In many cases, We should understand collective acts of contrition as what I described as value declaring rather than categorical apologies. Instead of accepting blame for a past wrongdoing, a value declaring apology announces or renews its commitment to a policy. A group can endorse a principle in this sense without admitting wrongdoing or invoking thorny issues of collective causation and responsibility. It can also avoid attributing blame to individual members of the group. The group can use the gesture to denounce the acts of others or even as a means of parrying an accusation against it by insisting on its unwavering commitment to the principle. And think here of uh, President Trump and his demand that others apologize for fake news. This is, every day now we see President Trump calling out media outlets saying, you know, fake news, fake news, fake news, apologize for fake news. Uh, He's declaring his, by demanding others apologize, he's declaring his insistence that he is the purveyor of truth. And other media agencies are false. Notice how that works. When victims of communities worry less about apportioning blame for the past, but instead primarily seek an assurance that a group will not commit an offense in the future, value declaring apologies may suffice. If we need not accept blame, some will argue, then I need not take responsibility. If I'm not at blame, if I'm not blameworthy, uh, why should I be taking responsibility? More practically, you'll hear, why should my tax dollars fund reparations for the sins of others? Notice, even if I did not cause an injury and I do not deserve blame, I may still have a moral duty to remedy it. It might be my job to fix a problem, even if I did not cause that problem. And presumably, this is an important aspect of a politician's job, right? Cleaning up the mess of former administrations. In various ways, we can inherit moral debts and obligations without being blameworthy. So just notice, categorical apologies pretty clear, I'm looking for blame. Some cases, right, we have debts without personal blame, or we have moral debts and apologies can be suitable even without personal blame, but we have to be careful here. Consensus, next issue I wanna talk about a little bit in collectives. Consensus issues can cause a lot of problems for collective apologies. Does every member of the collective, a slight majority, or only a powerful minority sign on to the apology. The proportion of the group endorsing the gesture reflects the likelihood that co- the collective will keep its promises not to reoffend. But a declaration from a few with power to strictly enforce a commitment will also serve this end. Whatever the Trudeau administration says and promises in their apologies, How much of the population supports the sentiment? Does the collective uniformly endorse the correct value? Or does it sermonize in general terms and expound on the wrong wrong? Does the collective honor the principle selectively? Or does it uphold its promise without exceptions or excuses? What exactly was wrong in the LGBT purge? How exactly will Canadians welcome refugees? Are Canadians of one mind about this? What happens if a far-right, and I hate to introduce this possibility, but uh, it happens sometimes, what happens if a far-right anti-immigration and social conservative administration is next in Canada. And they disagree with the apologies from Prime Minister Trudeau. Can they void his apologies? Various constituencies, particularly minority groups, would want to be careful not to take any apology from the Trudeau administration to mean that they are now safe to build their lives around promises made by a current administration. Standing. Uh, concerns regarding standing and delegation will also apply as we scrutinize who holds the authority to commit the collective to the values endorsed. The United States also denied entry to the MS St. Louis, but I imagine Prime Minister Trudeau won't be speaking for them. It would be interesting if he tried, right? If Trudeau tried to apologize for the United States, that would be kind of awesome. But what are the standards for membership in the collective? Who does have standing? Does Prime Minister Trudeau speak for himself, members of his party only, for the entire nation, or even, as Bill Clinton claimed to do, the entire international community? When Bill Clinton apologized for the Rwandan genocide, he spoke for the entire international community. It's Good work, <laughs> if you can get it. Blame relates to standing. If I'm not personally to blame, how am I authorized to offer the apology. Prime Minister Trudeau appears to lack standing to apologize categorically for either the MS St. Louis denial or the LGBT purge for two reasons. One, it does not seem that he can accept blame for causing the harm. And two, those who did cause the harm did not delegate the authority to apologize to him in any obvious respect. We might be tempted to say that his election as Prime Minister grants him standing to apologize for all of his predecessors. This would be problematic. Imagine, by contrast, if President Trump apologized for the disaster of Obamacare or for Bill Clinton's tarnishing of the Oval Office or even for the very wrong decisions of the judges in Roe v. Wade. We don't want to cherry-pick our theories of moral causation only to fit our favored causes. Two points related to standing merit emphasis. First, certain kinds of apologetic meaning are only possible with standing. Those who sent away the passengers of the MS St. Louis went to their graves unrepentant and the meaning of the apologies they never gave died with them. Gestures from Canadian, contemporary Canadian officials, would be meaningful in their own right, but they are incommensurable with the survivor hearing the words, I was wrong, from those who once treated her as animals, unworthy of entry. There are no shortcuts to this particular sort of meaning regardless of how strongly we may desire it. Second, notice that these apologies for the wrongs of others come rather easily because the apologizer does not need to admit that she has done anything wrong. Instead of suffering the anguish of admitting that they were personally wrong and confronting uncertain responses from their victims, as well as personally being on the hook for redress, politicians who apologize for others enjoy a breezy walk on the moral high road, explaining how others have failed. We should therefore be especially suspicious of groups apologizing for their predecessors as a cheap means of currying favor by sacrificing the already dead. Moral interlocutors. We should be mindful of the tenor of these discussions and whether they treat the recipients as their equals. Are the victims and their descendants viewed as equal participants in this painful process where we reveal our deepest values, our suffering, and our shame? Given the dehumanization inherent in these offenses, One should not underestimate the significance of engaging victims as peers, moral interlocutors. But must we engage every victim in such moral deliberation, or can we just pick a few representatives? Can we, and should we at least name all of the victims? You can see why sometimes victims might not want this. Can we describe the dead as interlocutors? Or does this just pretend that the apologies achieve more meaning than they can? If members believe that they have a deontological duty to honor the breach value, they might believe that someone has owned an apology of some kind, even if insurmountable obstacles make a categorical apology impossible. We might think that the MS St. Louis passengers who died in the death camps deserve an apology even though they are long dead. We might believe that they deserve an apology just as they would deserve a proper burial regardless of the instrumental value of such a gesture for modern discrimination policy. It can be important to recognize publicly That some person or group is owed a categorical apology even though this debt can never be paid because the only people with the proper currency have defaulted in death. Sometimes it is better to mourn losses than to pretend to remedy them. Compensation. For many, the most important part of an apology is the financial redress provided. Indeed, even President Obama did not, he did, he, Obama did not want any discussion of reparation. Congressman Conyers has for something like 20 years in a row asked for just a a congressional discussion of reparations for slavery. Uh, Obama is not even on board with this uh, because, You know, as people try to tally up, all right, what would proper reparations be? Reparations for African slavery, some have argued, would be so much that it would literally flip global wealth from north to south. In the United States, we don't even want to have the conversation. No less talk about, like, who who would, who would get what, right? There's just not political will. Important to remember, though. Uh, Even though apologies for such a massive injury can seem impossible and and almost ridiculous to discuss, Germany did apologize for the Holocaust and paid billions And that those billions were formative in the early economies of Israel. It was enough money that it made a geopolitical difference. I understand that the Trudeau administration did not provide financial conversation in the apology for the Komagatu, Komagata Maru incident, which is you know, structurally similar uh, to the MS St. Louis incident. So it seems unlikely that an apology for the MS St. Louis will come with economic redress. Even though the incident had clear economic consequences on the victim, victims, the LGBT purge also had undeniable and more recent negative financial impacts on victims, many of them still living. This includes not only being fired from gainful employment but all the ways that such injuries compound over time in the physical and financial health of victims and their families. Although neither of these cases generated the broad intergenerational justice problems associated with slavery in the U.S., discriminatory discriminatory (coughs) injuries have continued to accrue moral and financial interest over time. So the question I would look for in particular is, will Canada pay for these debts or will it ignore them? If the Trudeau Administration considers only a few scholarships for the descendants of victims, they might find broad support. But the higher the cost of reparations, the lower the political buy-in. Once people realize a collective responsibility will actually cost them, we should expect them to revert to more individualist conceptions of responsibility. Even a progressive taxpayer might support the notion of apologizing for historical injustice, but only if it does not cost her anything. After all, as the refrain goes that we've heard already, if I did no wrong, why should I lose my earnings and my entitlements. So who will pay? How much? Who will receive these benefits? Usually when someone apologizes, they personally undertake the work of redress. This is part of a hard treatment or penance, and it cannot be outsourced. Will anyone in the Trudeau administration make personal sacrifices for these apologies, or do they instead initiate the ritual and pageantry of collective apologies primarily for political gain. Intentions. Intentions matter. Political apologies suffer from a crisis of credibility as candidates and parties consult focus groups and pollsters to decide the extent to which various kinds of apologies confer strategic advantages. Although typically Determining an individual or group's intentions for apologizing requires highly fallible interests, right? It's, It's hard to know what people intend, right? Problem of other people's minds, how do we know what people are thinking? Sometimes we get a smoking gun, right? Recent Canadian politics, we had a smoking gun. Here we should heed the recent apology for the Chinese head tax. A fee levied against Chinese immigrants to Canada beginning in 1888. In 2013, A leaked memo from the Office of British Columbia's Liberal Party outlined a campaign strategy of using public funds to apologize to Chinese and Indian voters to secure, quote, quick wins with those ethnic groups. Outrage ensued. The now transparent attempt to intentionally use expressions of contrition for historical injustice in order to gain political support and to stage this cynical political theater on the taxpayer's dime led one victim's group leader to express a deep sense of betrayal. He explained that he found it, quote, highly offensive that now the moves on the part of the B.C. provincial liberals are tainted by this revelation, and it brings in the question their efforts at reconciliation with respect to historical wrongdoings, unquote. The president of the Head Tax Family Society of Canada summarized his position. Don't pander to me by saying, hey, we have a strategy, we're going to apologize. Well, you know what, he said, quote, take your apology and shove it where the sun don't shine, unquote. Others seem less concerned about the political maneuvering and were more focused securing meaningful redress for the thousands of families impacted. The executive director of the Chinese National Council equated a genuine apology with one that provided substantial compensation. Genuine equals money. Quote, if we wanted just an apology, he explained, we would have got it back in 2011 or 2012 or 2013. Okay? Just an apology. For some, Sufficient payments might be the most reliable and the most reliable measure of genuineness. Again, some victims may not care very much about the motivations for apologizing, so long as they get what they seek. This a la carte aspect of my theory of the elements of categorical apologies can help us understand what is being served, which is often apology gravy, without the meat of redress. This is a short conclusion. Apologies can provide a powerful opportunity for reconciliation and social justice, or they can distort our deepest spiritual traditions to compound the advantages of the privileged by disorienting and manipulating victims. In both individual and collective harms, a pattern subject to many disclaimers regarding cultural specificity becomes evident a victim suffers harm she wants something like an apology she may not have an exact sense of what an apology would entail but something like a categorical apology motivates her she wants to know what happened she wants someone to admit wrongdoing she doesn't want to stand by while someone else gets away with it violating a moral principle that she cares about She wants to be respected and recognized as wrong. She wants the wrongdoer to feel badly. She wants to know that this isn't going to happen again to her or to anyone else. And she wants the wrongdoer to take practical responsibility for fixing the problem. Asking the questions above can empower victims to pursue the meanings they seek. Such questions drive a healthy skepticism with respect to collective apologies. But we should not lapse into a cynical disregard for collective acts of contrition. Collective apologies can provide distinctly meaningful and indispensable supplements to individual apologies, especially in their ability to mobilize structural reform. If I have appeared overzealous in finding faults with collective apologies, I attribute this to frustration with occasions where institutions squander opportunities to enrich public discourse with thoughtful apologies. Far more than writings and ethics journals, public apologies provide a battleground where we express, contest, and honor our deepest values. Clarifying the meanings of apologies is urgent work, perhaps now more than ever, and for this reason, I very much appreciate this opportunity to discuss all these complexities with you. Thank you.